Okay. Now we are in the middle of the uh, the twelfth principle, the one related to uh, to coming of uh, of Mashiach. And when we left off last week, we were discussing some ways in which the principle related to Mashiach is different than uh, than other principles. Uh, one of the things that we talked about last week was how the principle related to the coming of Mashiach is uh, is a future thing rather than a present thing. So uh, we wondered uh, very strongly why exactly that's a principle and uh, why should this be a principle of faith as if it's going to, uh, in, in what way does it impact my regular, my daily avodas Hashem? So now we point out a, uh, another difference between uh, this principle having to do with, uh, with Mashiach and the, and the others. And that is, is that um, the, all the other principles, so they relate to each person as an individual. Each person individually is going to be, uh, uh, needs to uh, believe in the existence of a creator. Each person individually needs to believe in the uh, Torah Misenai, in the fact that the origin of Torah, each person individually needs to go ahead and believe in Schar and Onish, in the concept and the principles of reward and punishment. <coughs> Mashiach, however, is something which is uh, seemingly will be relevant ultimately only to the generation in which he is going to appear. So let's assume that he appears uh, in our generation now. Let's assume that the point the, the world has reached that point where Mashiach is going to come and all of the anxiety we have about uh, fasting this, uh, this Tisha B'Av will be for naught. So if that happens, so it will turn out that our generation so merited the, the principle of Mashiach is something which is relevant for us because they actually came in, uh, in our time. But, well, previous generations, so for them, it turns out that the existence of Mashiach was not something which was, uh, which was so relevant. So, um, so what, what exactly, why is this such an essential principle of belief? Let it just be something which will be experienced by those who are alive at the time that Mashiach actually, uh, actually appears. So the answer to that is, as uh, everybody I'm sure would anticipate, is that this is a, a, a principle which drives home the fact that we don't look at the coming of Mashiach as an individual experience, we look at it as a national experience. So Klal Yisrael is going to be dramatically uh, transformed upon the arrival of, of Mashiach, and it's something that we yearn for, it's something that we hope for, it's something that we look towards, not because how it's going to serve me as an individual, but how it's going to serve us as, as a nation. So even though it's going to turn out that the Mashiach is going to arrive and the direct impact will be, uh, will be felt by the generation in which Mashiach is actually going to appear, but nonetheless, that generation is representative. Collectively, Klai Yisrael is going to be impacted by that. And therefore, uh, we are going to go ahead and we, uh, we, we yearn for it and we, uh, and we daven for it. We hope for it on a, on a, on a daily basis because Klai Yisrael is not the same. Klai Yisrael is not the same now as it, will be, as it will be then. And what we want is we want that Klai Yisrael should be in a, uh, in, in a better per, uh, position. Sometimes a person could erroneously believe, and we had a little bit of that experience when we were davening by ourselves during the corona, but a person could erroneously believe that avodas Hashem could be done all by yourself. 
You can isolate yourself in a, in a room, in a home office or something like that, that I'm uh, looking at uh, now, a bunch of home offices. And you could go ahead and you could you do your davening from there. You could do your learning from there. Nowadays, you could go ahead and you could do your chesed. You could give tzedakah from there. You can essentially do all of the real, you could order your kosher food from there. You could do all of the essential things that you need to do um, all from the, uh, the privacy of your own, uh, your own uh, home office, and you don't actually need anybody else from, uh, from Klai Yusso. But this principle of Mashiach, which is going to be experienced directly by one generation of people, and all the previous generations are not going to be in- impacted by that, so that is something which uh, drives home this idea that this is a Klai Yisrael experience rather than an individual experience. And as a Klai Yisrael experience, so Klai Yisrael extends as a body, like uh, the Gemara says uh, uh, in a number of places. We were having, the, we had it recently in, in Yuma, but it's a really, it's a, it's a Kudshim concept. It's a Korban concept, and that is Tzibor Lomes. Then when it comes to a Tzibor, there's no such thing as a Tzibor dying. An individual who may have set aside an animal, animal to be a Korban Chatas, to be brought as, a, as an offering for a uh, a, a, uh, a serious uh, uh, transgression, which was violated. But so if that person ends up dying before he has a chance to bring that korban, so that animal cannot be used as a korban for anybody else. Because an individual will die, and we have a halach Messina, we have this oral law which says that the animal, uh, a korban chatas, uh, whose owner died, that animal has to be left to, uh, left to die. When it comes to the tzibur, though, when it comes to the community of Klaus, when it comes to the nation of Klaus, so there's no such concept, because the tzibur never dies, and there's always continuity from one generation to the next generation to the next generation, and we have to see ourselves as part as a cell within a larger body, and not something which where you could go ahead and just pull out a cell, and that cell will be able to live by itself, that there's no such thing, there's no such belief in, in Klai Yisrael, that you could take any one person out of the tzibur and they're going to be able to exist and they're going to be able to survive by themselves. In belief in Mashiach, this principle of Mashiach, which we know is only going to directly impact one generation, is illustrative of this principle, the fact that the tzibur of Klai Yisrael needs Mashiach, and whether you as an individual, or even you as your generation, will experience it directly or not, so that is secondary to the fact that it is a need of Klai Yisrael to go ahead and, uh, and, and have Mashiach. And this idea that, uh, that we have to see ourselves is part of this larger body, this larger body of Klai Yisrael, so explains to us a, a, an important idea. It's an idea that we're somewhat familiar with, but it's worth, uh, it's worth uh, emphasizing over here. And that is that if you think about it, if you, if you were to uh, uh, be in one of those moods where you're wondering about uh, maybe uh, as you're anticipating the coming of Tishabab and having to fast, so you may be wondering that, listen, uh, where did I go ahead and make any such commitment? Where did I say Nasa Venishma? 3,300 years ago or so, there was a generation of people who stood at Har Sinai. They went ahead and they made the declaration, Nasa Venishma. So they committed that they were going to follow the, uh, the Torah. I didn't make any such commitment. Who, made the, who, who here on this Zoom class made such a commitment personally to say Nasa Venishma to go ahead and accept the, uh, the Torah? So if you did not make that, uh, that commitment personally, so what makes that commitment something which is binding upon you? 
Now, I'm not giving anybody any ideas over here. They should think that you could just turn off the shear now and, uh, and say, well, the, the rabbi said that the Torah is not binding, and therefore I'm out of here. So there's no such thing. But the, the answer is, is related to the same idea of Tzibur Lomais, that Klal Yisrael is, there's a continuity of Klal Yisrael, and the continuity of Klal Yisrael makes it as if we are directly impacted by the commitment which was made by our ancestors. The same way that we would say uh, sort of legally, that if you're born as a United States uh, citizen, so you're born in the United States, so you become a citizen and you become bound by all of those rules and regulations, and there's no formal acceptance of the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, any of those other types of things. But if you were to move here, if you were a citizen of another country and you want to become a naturalized citizen, then you do have to go ahead and formally make that uh, acceptance of the the laws and uh, everything of the uh, of the United States. But when you're born into it, it's something which uh, happens uh, which happens automatically. So when we are born into, or when we go ahead and for the for those for whom it is it was a was a a, a choice of of um, of uh, conversion, so you go ahead and you the, the people converted did make the uh, make such a commitment, but those who are born into it never made such a commitment. So why is it something which is going to be binding? So the muscle which all of the uh, all of the Meforshim give, all of the commentators give, as far as this is concerned, is what happens when you go ahead and you get a deep cut. You go ahead. I have on my hand um, a a cut which I got from. One of the, uh, I must have been less than 10 still when we were in the, the new house, my parents' now old house, but we were there and somehow I had my hand between the, uh, the garage door track and the wall. And I pressed the button with my hand in between there. And for some reason, I couldn't pull my hand out in time and the garage door came down on my hand and I had a very deep cut. And to this day, I still have a scar from that. So you have to ask yourself, putting aside uh, your uh, medical thinking for a moment, uh, Stu, but you have to ask yourself, why is it that there's going to be, why would a scar remain? So there's a cut, and the cut heals. So if the cut heals, so the, the skin which is there, the skin cells which are there, when the cut heals, so they were impacted by the trauma, they were impacted by the, uh, by the cut, and the way they heal is going to be representative of, uh, of the fact that it was a very deep cut and there's a scar. But we all know that throughout our lives, uh, we shed sh- cells and new cells grow. So as the new cells grow in the spot of that cut, why, didn't, why don't they go back to the original programming of the body that there should be no scar there? Why does it go back to what the skin was like a month ago, a month before the cut was there, or a year before the cut was there, or five years before the cut was there? At the time that it scars up, there's a much longer programming of not having a scar than having a scar. So why doesn't the, uh, the body heal in a way where there's going to be no scar? But we know that lemaisa that if you get a deep cut, it transforms somehow the signals which are going to be coming from, uh, from the brain. And essentially for the remainder of your life, you're going to have that scar there. The scar is going to remain because the body is going, the body in a sense remembers the fact that there was a deep cut at that particular location. And every time new cells regenerate, you shed cells and new cells appear, they're going to carry with it the impact of that original traumatic experience, that original deep cut. And for the rest of one's life, essentially, so there's going to be a mark, there's going to be a memory of the fact that that was, uh, that that was there. 
So those new cells are not really completely new cells. They're not sort of like yesh me'ayin. They're not something from uh, nothing which, uh, which has no connection to the past. Every time new cells appear at that location, they're going to appear with the impact, the impact of that, uh, that, very deep, uh, that, that very deep cut. And the same thing is true with regards to the Jewish people, that when Klai Yisrael, the, the generation which was there, what we would consider to be the greatest generation on earth. So that, that generation in 2448, who stood at Har Sinai, and they received the Torah, so when they did so, they transformed the spiritual DNA of the Jewish people, so that every offspring, every Jew who comes into existence, whether by birth or whether by choice, every Jew is now going to be impacted by that declaration of Nasev and Ishma, and it becomes something which is going to be binding automatically. And this, again, uh, uh, illustrates and highlights the fact that we don't really exist by ourselves as, a, as, a, uh, as an individual. We exist as part of a tzibur, both the tzibur that's alive today, as well as the tzibur, which is connected with all of the tzibors, all of Klai Yisrael in the, in the past. And this one just a, a, a um, continuous flow of, uh, of, of generation after generation after generation, and that's why when we, uh, we daven uh, for the arrival of Mashiach, even if it were to uh, turn out that we don't live long enough to actually see the arrival of Mashiach, nonetheless, it's something which is valuable for the, the body of Klai Yisrael, for the collective Klai Yisrael to, uh, to experience. And that's why, even though it's different than the other uh, principles, in the sense that one, one may not ultimately be directly impacted by the arrival of Mashiach, because it may be after 120 for any one of us here. Nonetheless, it is something which is, in a sense, like we talked about last, uh, last week, it's an essential part of our belief, because without it, so we don't really have the ability to endure the various suffering and the various tragedies, which, which nationally we've experienced in the form of uh, and crusades and inquisitions and pogroms and anti-Semitism and Palestinian terrorists and all of that, uh, that sort, which uh, we experience a generation after uh, a generation. Um, now, this doesn't mean you shouldn't conclude from here that Mashiach is not something which is going to impact us as individuals. That even when Mashiach comes, it's something which is going to be felt sort of on a national uh, level, but it's not something which is going to filter down on a personal level. Uh, you know, when the United States wins lots of uh, medals at the, at the Olympics, so there's a sense of national pride which we have. So even though we have a sense of national pride when that takes place, it's not something which actually I- impacts me as an individual as an individual citizen living in Skevinston somewhere. So I'm not actually going to be impacted by the number of medals which the U.S. is going to bring home from the, uh, from the Summer Olympics. So on a national level, yes, as a citizen of the United States, certainly it's something which is, uh, which is exciting and, uh, and, and thrilling. But on a personal level, it's not something which impacts me directly. So we shouldn't think of the arrival of Mashiach as having a similar type of quality to it in that it's something which we're going to experience and we will enjoy from a national level, a national perspective, but not something which is going to filter down and impact me directly on a personal level. So the, uh, the Mepharshim, the, uh, the commentators tell us that that's actually not the case. That's not going to be the, uh, that's not going to be the, uh, the process. 
and uh, uh, each individual who's going to be alive at that time is actually going to experience the arrival of Mashiach, the impact of the arrival of Mashiach on a very personal level. And for this, we have to get a little bit uh, Kabbalistic, not too bad, but a little bit uh, Kabbalistic in order to, uh, to get our, uh, our frame of reference. So they tell us, it's interesting, I was just talking about this, I think, between Mincha Marv a couple of weeks ago in, in Shul, but uh, there were, we are told that the neshama, when we talk about a, person, a, a person's soul, a person's neshama, a person's spirit, whatever word we're going to assign to that, so there's actually five parts of the soul, five different parts of, uh, uh, of the, the soul, which everybody has, and that is, we'll go from the lowest to the highest, so the lowest part is called nefesh. When we use the term nefesh, that's referring to the nefesh of Bahamas. That's the most physical part of the, uh, of the soul. And that's the part which actually corresponds to our ability of, uh, of motion. What separates us from the plant kingdom, let's say, is this lower level of the, uh, of the soul, which is what we call the, uh, the nefesh. Now, the next level up, as we're going up, is going to be what's called ruach that we usually translate as spirit. So ruach is the part of the soul which is going to contain levels of emotion. So that's where we experience joy and sadness and excitement and anticipation and anxiety and depression. All of that is going to exist on the part of the soul which is called ruach. The next level up from there is called neshama. Neshama, that's where we talk about from the word neshima, that's a higher level of the soul. That's where HaKadosh Baruch Hu blew into Adam Arishon, the very life itself. So that's going to be neshama, which is related to, uh, to neshima. That corresponds to the ability, that's what separates us from, uh, from, uh, from animals, in a sense, that that's where higher level thinking is going to take place. That's where our cognitive thought uh, takes place, and that's where all of that is going to reside in the part which is called the neshama. Then, now all of that may very well be true, uh, and this is what I was talking about between Minchamarv a few weeks ago and Shul, all of those levels, the nefesh, ruach, and neshama, they may be true both for Jews and non-Jews as well. There may not be a distinction be- between them. As humans, so you'll have those three different components, I told them that corresponds to three different parts of the brain the brain stem, the uh, limbic brain, and then the neo, the uh, frontal neocortex, all that stuff where the thinking takes place. But those things are pretty universal as far as mankind is concerned. Then when we get to the higher levels, this is now where we differentiate between Jews and Gentiles. So the next level up, level number four, is called Chaya. And this is where the soul is driven to go ahead and do mitzvahs. Let's call it the Yetzir Tov, if you, if you will. But this is where that motivation is going to come from, is that higher level, which is called Chaya. And then the highest level of the soul, level number five, all the way at the top of the totem pole. So that's what's called Yechida. Yud Ches, Yud Daud Hey. And you see within that word is, is, is related to the word Echad or yachad, together, or echad, together in, a, in one, are really the, the same idea. And that's the part of the soul which seeks dveikus bahashem, which seeks to attach itself and to unify itself together with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And this is the essence of the, uh, of the neshama. This is what ultimately we're striving for. Vatem hadveikim bahashem alokechem, that all of us are called upon through the process of the study of Torah and the performance of mitzvahs, all of that ultimately is to lead to Dveikas with, uh, with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Now, the lower three parts, 
So as we said, those are connected to the body. So those are part, those are connected to the physical part of our existence. The two higher parts, the Chaya and the Echida, so those are higher levels, more elevated parts of the soul, and they are by and large hidden from us. We're taught of their existence. On occasion, we may be able to sense their existence, but it's something which is very difficult for us to be able to, uh, to tap into. Those are levels that Sadiqim and Hasidim are going to be able to, uh, to, be able to, uh, to access. But for the rest of us, it's something which is a little bit uh, more, more, more difficult. But what we are taught is, as far as Makadoshim tell us, that upon the arrival of Mashiach, so those higher levels of the soul, that of Chaya and Yechida, those higher levels of the soul are going to be, are going to be revealed as, as well. And we're able to access those higher levels, those that motivate us to do mitzvahs, and those that motivate us to connect with Hashem, so they will be relevant and they will be as active as the three lower parts of the soul that we experience right now in terms of emotions and higher level thinking and the ability to move and all of that, uh, and all, all of that, uh, that stuff. So God's concealment, the fact that God is hidden from us and we can't easily discern his existence and, and whatnot. So that's the result of the fact that we are living in a pre-Mashiach era so that these higher levels of the soul are not easily accessible, uh, accessible to us. But once Mashiach comes, so one of the things which we know, which is going to be characteristic of that time, is there's going to be clear knowledge recognized uh, uh, in recognition of God's existence throughout the world. And once we have that clarity of knowledge, that clarity of vision of God's existence and his role as the creator and the need which we have to serve him, so then these higher levels of the soul, which associate with the doing of mitzvahs, which associate with unifying with Hashem, so now they suddenly become these very strong motivators which we have, and it's something which everybody's going to be driven towards at that, uh, that, that particular particular time. The... Uh, they uh, they equate it again. The uh, in the in the in Sfarim, you find that they equate the uh, those parts of the soul like a composer, or let's say a a, a, a somebody who is a uh, piano virtuoso. Is that it? Okay, we'll go with that. A virtuoso. So a somebody who is a piano uh, virtuoso. So they have tremendous potential talent. You sit them in front of a piano and they can make just the most beautiful music that you've ever heard. But if you don't sit them in front of a, a, a piano, they're sitting in front of uh, you know, a desk uh, with a computer uh, you know, crunching uh, numbers in the office. So all of, their, all of their talent that they have to be able to play piano is not going to find expression if you don't go ahead and give them a piano for them to be able to, uh, to play. So the soul which each and every one of us has which includes the Chaya in the Yechida, for most of us, it's like that piano virtuoso who doesn't have a piano, who doesn't have a piano currently in front of him to be able to play. So the potential is there, but it can't actualize all of that the talent in the absence of an actual uh, a, a piano. And the arrival of Mashiach will be that opportunity where those parts of the soul, those more elevated parts of the soul, those more holy parts of the soul will finally find full expression uh, of these uh, of their uh, their talents and their uh, their uh, their strength. And that's where it's upon the arrival of Mashiach that all of that will ultimately be uh, be actualized. So that's what I meant when I said that the the impact of the arrival of Mashiach isn't something which is merely a national uh, impact, 
that Klai Yisrael as a nation that will now be uh, self-governed and will now no longer be subject to the uh, to the authority and the uh, the laws and the regulations of uh, of other uh, governments, but we will have self-governance. But it's not merely just the self-governance which is going to occur at that time that the exile comes to an end. We have a Beis Amitash. And we have Klai Yisrael living in the land of Israel, but it's something which each of us individually is going to experience as we now have full access, like sometimes you get an app uh, and, uh, you know, the mundane stuff is there for free if you actually want to use it well and productively. So that'll already cost you $1.99 a month. That'll cost you $5.99 a month, whatever is going to be to actually use the good stuff. So that's something which is going to, uh, to cost money. So it's there in the app. You just can't access it until you actually uh, pay for it. So in the same way, these higher levels of the neshama, chaya and yechida, are for the most part inaccessible to us in our current existence, but will become fully accessible to us upon the uh, upon the arrival of, uh, of Mashiach. Okay. Now, one uh, another point which, uh, which needs to be uh, emphasized over here is... Another thing which makes this, uh, this particular principle, this principle related to the coming of Mashiach, so what makes it a unique type of, of principles. Um, uh, so for the most part, uh, most of the other uh, principles which we had, so they, are, uh, they begin with sort of profound philosophical beliefs, belief in the existence of God, the nature of God, those types of things, like the first five principles relating to God. So all of those had to do with particular principles of belief about the existence of God. But those, uh, those, uh, the, uh, the data, which those principles share with us, which those principles teach us, so they don't necessarily immediately impact our lives. So my belief in God, in the exact nature of God, is not something which translates automatically into, a, uh, into uh, the practice of my life, into the behavior of our, of our lives. The job of translating, translating how we're going to allow belief in God and the, uh, the, uh, the things related, uh, uh, related uh, to that, so that's something which was left up to, uh, to us. The existence of God, unity of God, the fact that God is, does not have a body, non-corporeality of God, the eternity of God. So those are all philosophical ideas. Those are ideas which we, uh, you know, could spend time thinking about in our head and the, uh, the translation of that into our, into our practice, into our day in and day out lives. So that's left up to, uh, to us. The Mashiach actually is interesting because there is a direct translation into our daily lives, which is incumbent in, uh, in, in binding and expected of each and every one of us. So it's almost counterintuitive in this way that something which is not going to impact the same number of people, it's, its impact is going to be felt more nationally than individually in some, uh, in some aspects, has a, a, an automatic translation in terms of its binding nature. And what is that? So the Gemara and Shabbos, those who, uh, who remember, the Gemara and Shabbos tells us on, uh, on Lamed Aleph, that talks about the questions which a person is going to be asked after, they, uh, after 120. When a person is no longer here physically in this world, they go into the next world, and the first thing that one's going to experience is judgment. And the first question which we're going to be asked, as far as the judgment is concerned, is Tzipisa Yeshua? Did you look forward to the salvation? 
That's the first question we're going to be asked. Not, do you ever actually eat that double bacon cheeseburger that you talk about all the time? Not, how well did you keep Shabbos? Not, did you fast on, on Yom Kippur? And did you do a lot of vidui and all of that? That's not going to be the first question of which we're going to be asked. But see, peace of the Yeshua, which is interesting, because the looking towards salvation isn't one of the 613 mitzvahs. It's not one of the taryag mitzvahs which are obligated to keep. So that means the first question we're going to be asked isn't even something which is taryag mitzvah related. It is just one of these fundamental uh, uh, beliefs. And now what we find out from that question that we're going, that the Gemara tells us that we're going to be asked, so you could, you know, prepare your cheat sheet now, but that question which we are, which we are, are told are we're going to be asked, the first question which is going to be asked tells us that it's not even enough to believe in the 12th principle of the coming of Mashiach, but one has to actually anticipate, one has to be looking forward to the arrival of Mashiach. So this gives us a new thing, that a new idea, a new concept that we need to, uh, to consider over here in terms of this principle that it's not even enough that I believe that Mashiach is going to come, but the expectation is, is that I'm longing and I'm yearning for the arrival of Mashiach. So what exactly does that mean? What does it mean when we say this is a translation of this principle into our daily lives that we, we, can't, we, we won't be able to answer dishonestly, now that you know the question. You can't just write on your hand that the answer to question one is yes. So saying yes is not going to be enough. Just answering yes is not, is not going to uh, suffice. They'll know whether or not we're cheating on that question or not. And we have to go ahead and conduct ourselves and behave in a way now which is indicative, which is going to be demonstrative of the, of the fact that the answer to that question is going to be yes, that we actually are anticipating the arrival of, of Mashiach. So what exactly does that mean? How does that translate in, 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 in practical terms? And we know from the Animamin version of this, this is the most famous of all of the Animamins, the one of, uh, the, related to Mashiach. So we say, Mashiach. So I believe with a complete faith in the coming of Mashiach, and even though Mashiach is tarrying, is delaying, is, uh, is not uh, coming uh, so quickly. So, uh, nonetheless, I still hope and I still anticipate in his arrival, every day that he's going to arrive. So we know that uh, animamin perfectly well. There are probably many tunes which are running through your, uh, your head. I don't mean to throw an earworm in there. But there are plenty of tunes which you could probably sing, which is going to capture the, uh, the words of that, uh, that thing. And we see there as well that there's actually two different components, two different elements of this principle. One is animami I believe in principle that there is such a thing as Mashiach, which is going to bring Klai Yisrael in the world into the next era, the next era where we get closer to, uh, to, uh, to perfection, not the final era of resurrection, that's the next principle, but the next era of, uh, of the, uh, the, the era of Mashiach. But not only am I obligated to believe in that, but uh, 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 I have to hope on a daily basis uh, for the arrival of Mashiach. So there's a principle belief, and then there's translation of that into the practical obligation which I have to actively anticipate and yearn for its, uh, its arrival. So now we have to think about, so what exactly does that mean? When we say that, that every day, that every day I anticipate his, uh, his arrival. So normally, 
what we would think is, and you hear some people say this, uh, you know, talk in these terms, that they say uh, that uh, tomorrow when Mashiach comes, as if there's a mitzvah to go ahead and believe that tomorrow Mashiach is going to come, or maybe to believe today Mashiach is going to come. There's time yet left in the day. Maybe, uh, you know, it's not yet Mincha time. So there's still time that Mashiach is going to come. I don't know if Mashiach can't come at night, but that uh, Mashiach is going, to, uh, is going to, uh, to be coming. So I have an obligation to talk on a regular basis as if Mashiach is coming today or Mashiach is coming tomorrow. Now, the problem with that is, is that that's actually not true. We know definitively that Mashiach, that we cannot anticipate the arrival of Mashiach on any given day, because the Gemara in Erevin tells us, Erevin Mem Gimel base tells us, that Mashiach is not going to appear on Shabbos or Yantif. And not only is Mashiach not going to appear on Shabbos or Yantif, but even Erev Shabbos and Erev Yantif, Mashiach is not going to appear for the very simple reason is that we don't have any time for Mashiach and Erev Shabbos and Erev Yantif. Things are too hectic getting ready for Shabbos and Yantif. And if Mashiach were to appear on an Erev Shabbos and Erev Yantif, we would end up entering into Shabbos without the refrigerator lights being turned off and we wouldn't have the cholent on and all sorts of bad things would happen. And that would just break down complete shalom bias in the home as nothing got done. Nobody took care of their responsibilities in terms of getting their vino hot water for coffee. So it would just be the worst Shabbos ever. So Mashiach is not going to come Shabbos Yantif, Erev Shabbos, or Erev Yantif. So then what does that mean? So how could we say that I am yearning for him to come every day when we know that he's not coming every day? That we have a large percentage of the calendar, the yearly calendar, in which Mashiach is not going to be, is not going to be coming. Uh, those who, uh, who attend uh, Shal Shudas in the month of Mar Cheshvan, in Shul, uh, and it should happen soon that we have uh, Shal Shudas in Shal Kiddush and Shal Shudas soon. But uh, you'll remember that Benji often tells the story from Rabbi Yujint that when Rabbi Yujint was, I don't know if this was in the ghetto in one of the camps or at some point during the, uh, during the war, during the Holocaust. So a rumor began to spread that Mashiach is coming and everybody should run out to, uh, to greet uh, Mashiach. And most of the people went ahead and they found they were so excited to hear that Mashiach was uh, there. They so wanted Mashiach to be, uh, to be there that they all went running out afterwards. And Rabbi Yujin said to himself, I think it was like an Arab Shabbos or something like that, Arab Yantif. Rabbi Yujin said, it can't be that this is Mashiach because Mashiach can't come today. And he didn't follow the crowd because he said, Chazal tell us that Mashiach cannot come today. And it turned out that everybody who followed the crowd, they were all killed by Nazis. And he, one of the few people, if not the only person who knew the Gemara and said it's impossible for Mashiach to come today. So he survived that. So we know for sure that there are days when Mashiach is not coming. Two days out of seven, at least, in addition to all of Yantav. So you've got a large percentage of the, of the calendar where Mashiach is not coming. So what exactly does it mean that that um, so what what is the practical um, uh, uh, meaning of that phrase which we say that every day I yearn for Mashiach to come if it doesn't mean that we actually are supposed to say he's coming tomorrow or he's coming today or he's coming tomorrow if it's not going to mean that so what does it mean so Yaakov Weinberg so he explains that the phrase doesn't mean that you have to actually, that you have an active belief that Mashiach is coming today or Mashiach is coming tomorrow. He could on most days, 
But it's not so much your belief that he is coming tomorrow. That's not what's expected of us. What's expected of us is that we are achakelo. I am awaiting his arrival on a daily basis. He may not be coming today because it's Erev Shabbos. He may not be coming today or tomorrow because it's Erev Shabbos and Shabbos, and he's not coming on those days. But that doesn't mean that I'm not awaiting his arrival. The main thing is, awaiting the yearning for his arrival, not the belief that he actually will be coming today or tomorrow. Those are two very, uh, two very different uh, things. And he uses as, a, as an example, we'll use a, uh, a newlywed couple. It just may be easier for some of us to go ahead and, uh, and, and, and process. So newlywed couples, so they're so excited to spend every moment with, uh, with one another. They go on errands together, and they go shopping together, and they do everything together because as newlyweds, so they're still enjoying all of that, uh, that together time which they have. We'll call it that, that honeymoon uh, period. Now, it happens to be that one of them, all of a sudden, uh, for work, a week after the chasad, the first day after when Sheva Brachas is over, so uh, we find out that she needs to take a, a business trip, and she's going to be gone for the week completely unanticipated, an emergency happened at work, and she needs to go ahead and fly to, I don't know, Alaska for, uh, for a week. No, nope. so it's a tragedy for them that, uh, you know, their first week uh, after Sheva Brachas, and they can't continue to go shopping and spend time together, wash dishes together, do laundry together, all of those, uh, those uh, loving experiences, and she's going to be gone for a week. So now, while she's gone for that week, so on Monday, is she coming home? She's not coming home, because she hasn't been there for the week. But do each one of them yearn for the end of the week when they actually, she will come home and they'll be together once again? Obviously, the answer is yes. So they're counting down the days for the time, for the moment when she is going to return. So that's what we mean, that they're yearning, they realize how... uh, um, how deficient they are, how they're missing a part of themselves as a result of the fact that she's in Alaska rather than in their, uh, their new apartment, wherever that new apartment uh, happens to be. But they miss one another and they look forward uh, desperately for the time that they're going to be together once again, but with a full realization that she's not on a plane, she's not going to surprise me by showing up, to, by showing up to, uh, tonight. She just uh, you know, sent me pictures of glaciers, which are outside of her uh, hotel uh, uh, window over there, and you're not going to be able to fake that at Lake Michigan. You're not going to be able to pull, you know, pull that off, a picture from the plane going over Lake Michigan with, uh, with a glacier there. So there's no doubt whatsoever that she's actually in uh, Alaska, and she's not coming home. But just because we know for sure she's not coming home doesn't mean that it doesn't detract at all from the that we anticipate and we're yearning and we're hoping and looking forward to for that, uh, that, that, that opportunity. So if Weinberg says that the same thing is true with regards to, uh, with regards to our longing and our yearning and our for Mashiach. That the, uh, the principle which says that we're supposed to yearn for Mashiach, and we're supposed to anticipate his arrival on a daily basis, doesn't mean that Mashiach is coming on any particular day. But what it, because we happen to know that he's not coming Erev Shabbos, he's not coming on Shabbos itself, he's not coming Erev Yontif or An Yontif. So it's not as if we think that on any particular day he's going to be able, he's going to walk through the door, he's going to, he's going to announce his arrival. But what we do need to know is is that we need to generate a mindset in which we are fully aware that without the arrival of Mashiach, life is not the same. Life is incomplete. 
we are deficient, we are missing out on a large part of our lives. It's as if a part of us is missing every day that Mashiach is not here, and therefore I want Mashiach. I'm, I'm looking forward to, and I realize how, uh, how deficient my life is in the absence of the, uh, the arrival of Mashiach, but not that I actually think that he's coming in at any particular moment. Every time the door knocks, you don't have to go running up with your suitcase saying, okay, I'm ready to pop on the plane to make my way to, uh, to Israel. That's not what this, uh, this principle demands of us. That's not what's expected of us out of this principle. What is demanded and expected of us is the realization that life is not whole and complete because we're missing such, a, such a, 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 an integral part of our, of our existence. And uh, as successful as we uh, we may find ourselves uh, to be, every person in their place, uh, you know, in the uh, the generation in which we live, that even the poorest of the poor are more affluent than the uh, the richest of the rich. You know, generations uh, generations ago, you know, many poor, not all, but many poor people have. Uh, a car, they have a cell phone, they have, you know, access to food and shelter, and they're not uh, literally starving. But nonetheless, so as, as affluent and prosperous, we are both individually, as well as collectively, with all of the things which are going for us, and with a system, which is unparalleled in the history of the number of people studying Torah, the number of people study Torah just today on Zoom is astronomically larger than the number of people that you could find studying Torah generations uh, generations ago. But with all of that, in the uh, the uh, the easy access to kosher food and the, the the ability to observe Shabbos and all of those things, all of the luxuries we have and all the things which we have going for us, still we have to be mindful of the fact that life as a Jew is wholly incomplete. It's incomplete without the uh, presence of Mashiach. It's incomplete without the world recognizing God as the creator and the, uh, the supreme being that everybody should be uh, serving and everybody should, uh, should be worshiping. In all of those things, we should have to remind ourselves on a regular basis that we still don't have uh, a Beis HaMikdash and all that. Uh, there's a story of a chassid who went to uh, visit his rabbi. Uh, and he was going to, 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 to report to his Rebbe that, uh, you know, Baruch Hashem, all the Rebbe's brachas have been mekuyim, have been uh, fulfilled. That he's got a good family, he's got a good parnasa, and everybody has good health. And he came in and he came all, all excited. He said, Baruch Hashem, Rebbe, all of the Rebbe's brachas have, uh, have, uh, have, uh, have, uh, have been fulfilled because everything is just hunky-dory in my life. And I just want to express thanks to, uh, to the Rebbe for, uh, for all of those blessings, for, uh, uh, for directing Hashem's blessing in my, uh, in my direction. And I'm greatly appreciative of all of that. And you, you would think that the Rebbe would be excited by that, to hear that his brachas were actually fulfilled. And this guy is experiencing a good family and good health and good parnas and good things going in his life. And the fellow was just so excited. And the Rebbe had one simple question for him today. Did we bring a Korban Tamid today? And obviously the person wasn't thinking about bringing a Korban Tamid at all. That wasn't the, you know, the, the first or last thing on his mind as to whether or not they brought a Korban Tamid. But the Rebbe was reminding him that it's wonderful when you're experiencing good things in your personal life. But what about a Kodesh Baruch Hu? 
HaKadosh Baruch Hu is not in a good position uh, in our, our current existence because he's in Shamayim. We're here on Aretz. There's no Beis HaMikdash, which is going to bridge the gap, which is going to allow the Dveikas and the attachment between Klai Yisrael and HaKadosh Baruch Hu to find full expression. And as a result of that, it's wonderful that you're having good things, but you have to think outside of yourself a little bit. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu is none too happy with the current existence, the current state of affairs as the world exists now while we are still in Galus, and we still don't have a base of Mitish, and we'll still, we're, we are still not bringing Korbanos. And that is the point of this piece of the Yeshua. This question, which we're going to be asked at the, uh, at the end of our lives, when we get up to Shoaim, piece of the Yeshua is essentially this question that, did you lead your life? Did you live your life with an awareness that as good as things may be going for you, life is not complete as long as there's no Beis Amitosh, you don't have the Achtus of Klai Yisrael, you don't have the Dveikas between Klai Yisrael and HaKadosh Baruch Hu. and until that moment arrives, nothing can actually be, uh, you cannot have that feeling of contentment in being fully settled in the circumstances of your life, as long as that, uh, as long as that last component, that essential component is not yet in, in place. And that's what we need to think about when we say that that I wait for Mashiach every day that he should come, not, as we said, that he's going to literally walk in the door and make an appearance on any given day, but the recognition that our lives are not whole and complete as long as we still don't have Mashiach who is, uh, who is here. So there is, uh, obviously, there's a lot more to, uh, to discuss related to uh, the existence of Mashiach who he is, what he is, what he's going to do, and all of and all of those uh, those different things. But as far as this uh, this series is concerned, for the uh, the thirteen principles, so I think we have uh, done our due diligence to explain why this principle is so essential and why it's something which is uh, which is so important. And uh, we will put a uh, we will call it uh, quits uh, as far as uh, that principle is concerned. So next week, uh, um, actually next week, no, we're not on. Next week, I have a, a rabbi conference on Tuesday, Wednesday. Um, and then the following Tuesday, what's going to be the following Tuesday? Is that already? That's the Tuesday of the nine days, right? 